0: We uh, will be continuing this kind of where we've been in the last two weeks looking at Gideon's life and wrapping up Gideon's story. If you were with us in the last two weeks, we said that basically one thing has sort of been characterizing Gideon throughout the book. He's been characterized by his self-centeredness. We started there two weeks ago, recognizing that Gideon's sort of unable to perceive this encounter with this stranger who turns out to be the angel of God, because the whole time in the midst of this conversation, Gideon can't quite get past his own self-evaluations, his own self-limitations. We said that we often think about self-centeredness as being primarily pride, right? A self-centered person is one who thinks a lot of themselves, one who thinks maybe with arrogance or pride that they're better. But what we're realizing from Gideon's story is that self-centeredness showed up even in his low self-esteem as much as anybody in their high self-esteem. Gideon, in the last two weeks, has wrestled time and time again to trust God, to move past his fear. And last week we saw that fear becomes the primary way that this self-centeredness starts showing up. Every time God speaks to Gideon and encourages him, calls him to something, Gideon stumbles, pauses, paralyzed by fear, unable to think beyond himself and what it could mean for him. Now, to be totally fair to Gideon, right? If you read in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews has the famous Hall of Faith chapter where it goes through the Old Testament's characters. Gideon makes the list. And the New Testament actually commends Gideon for his faith because it's true. As much as Gideon has gotten wrong, as much self-interest as we've seen in him the last two weeks, he doesn't ever walk away. He continues, he wrestles, he questions God. But we pointed out before that there's more dialogue between Gideon and God than any of the other judges in the book. He may have struggled... He may have had doubts but he kept the conversation going he stayed near God and in the end we're actually pretty encouraged at how willing God was to do the same in spite of his struggle in spite of his fear in spite of his sort of frustrating attempts to figure out what's going to happen before God has given him the information God seems willing time and time again to talk with him to lead him to reassure him there's actually quite a bit of grace and hope that I find pretty encouraging as well when we ended last week, we paused the story, if you remember, probably the most famous scene people will remember from Gideon's life. If you remember Gideon's story, you remember Gideon and the 300 men who take on the entire Midianite army with trumpets and torches, you remember this part, and end up destroying the whole Midianite force. Well, we paused right in the middle of that story last week and said we'd pick it up this week. What we read this week through chapter 8, so we'll start in chapter 7, is going to be a hard story. But I think it might actually be one of the most interesting stories in the entire Old Testament. And that's actually for me to say a lot. But the more I've read it this week, the more sort of impressed I've been at how honest it is and the more I've been touched by just how real it seems to be to even our experiences the more I've been impressed with just the story itself how interesting it's been written so I've been pretty excited to be able to wrap it up this week but it's not a particularly easy story to work through I think we'll see for some certain specific points so what I want to do is what we've kind of done walk through the story and to be honest we're going to spend more time in the story than we usually do because I think by the time we come to the end of it it speaks pretty clearly for itself I don't think it'll take too much much work on my part to sort of help us see the implications it ends up bringing up. So if you've got your Bibles, judges chapter seven, and we're going to start in verse uh, 19 and we're going to read verse 19 through the end of chapter seven and then we'll stop. So judges chapter seven, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth towards toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola, of Tebath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all of the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So, like I said, probably if you're familiar with Gideon, one of the more hmm, sort of famous passages about his life. Gideon's story, for all that it's sort of drug out over the last two weeks, these two chapters leading up to it, it finally seems to get back on track with what we expect from the book of Judges, right? So far, we've had this pattern that keeps playing out, and it always ends with a military defeat of the enemies of Israel. And the story seems to give us exactly that. Finally, Gideon has worked up the courage. He leads his men into battle, and by God's miraculous intervention, he brings victory. It's a small sort of touch of irony, I think, in the midst of the story, that it's fear, after all, right? This topic that's plagued Gideon, that ends up being the very thing that undoes the Midianites, not Gideon. When the torches come out and the trumpets are blown, fear breaks out in the Midianite camp, and they literally begin to attack one another and defeat themselves in the midst of fear. This thing that seems to be the, the primary topic that Gideon was so often struggling with. The battle it ends up wrapping up with a pursuit and the capture of two of these Midianite kings. One is captured and killed at a place called the Rock, probably some sort of memorial stone, an altar, and the other at a wine press. I don't know if you sort of catch the moment here, but these settings you sort of can't help reflect on how far Gideon has come in this story. He ends up wrapping up the story by finally conquering these two Midianite kings at an altar and at a wine press. The last time we had Gideon at a wine press and a rock, you might have remembered, was back in the very beginning. He was hiding in a wine press trying to make a living and thresh some wheat. This rock, this memorial stone, was probably like the one his father had set up to worship the Canaanite gods in his home. Gideon, afraid, small, incapable, now at the end of the story, a judge in all rights and expectations of what we had come to expect. He looks like Othniel, that perfect judge, remember back at the beginning of Judges, a hero, a victory, a battle. But if you pay attention, if you read much with us in the book of Judges, there's a couple peculiar things that start popping out about this story. One of the things that's so remarkable and uh, i've sort of been enjoying this about reading the book of judges spending more time in it than i have before is each of these judges begins to build on the story of judges that's come before them so as you read through the book and you start stacking up these stories you start noticing and paying attention to things because of the progress of the stories that you wouldn't have noticed before so we said all these judges kind of follow this same storyline do you remember that the storyline goes israel falls away begins to worship false gods they get conquered by a Canaanite people and cry out to God. Then God raises up a judge, and then the judge, through a military victory, overthrows the enemy. And then what's the last part of every story? Every story has always ended with the exact same thing. Do you remember what it is? There's peace for 20 years. There's peace for 40 years. Do you remember that? Peace is established in Israel. But you might notice something unique about the ending of Gideon's story. We aren't told that after the battle, there's peace at all. These two kings get conquered, the enemy gets destroyed, but we find as we turn the page to chapter 8 that the story keeps going. The peace that we had expected at the end of the great battle doesn't actually come at all. We come to the conclusion that apparently, unlike all of the judges before, this military victory isn't the final point of the story. There's something still going on, we haven't really reached the ultimate conclusion. There's another thing. It's small, but it actually sticks out as somewhat strange given the rest of the book of Judges. Do you notice the battle cry? Verse 20. As they break their torches and blow their trumpets, the men yell out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. (coughs) It's actually in the passage before this one. We didn't read through it, but maybe you did on your own. That Gideon and one of his men sneak into the Midianite camp, trying to scope out what the enemy will look like. And while there, they overhear two soldiers talking. One of the soldiers, these Midianite soldiers, had had a dream. The dream was that literally a giant round loaf of bread had rolled into the middle of the camp. You can't help but sort of catch the connection to Gideon threshing wheat, right? And as it rolled into the camp, it literally began to flatten and level tents within the Midianite camp. The other Midianite soldier, hearing this dream, interpreted it up in verse 14 by saying, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all of this camp. Upon hearing this confirmation, we could probably expect the exact same thing that Gideon does. Gideon is bolstered with confidence, finding out that even out of the own mouth of the Midianites, they've admitted the defeat that's coming. And he's encouraged to lead his troops down to where we picked up the story in the defeat, the rout of the Midianites. So Gideon gives the command to his troops, take trumpets, break your lamps. And when you do, he instructs his troops, shout out for the Lord and for Gideon. At least at this point, we could say this is peculiar for Gideon because it doesn't seem to be the character that he's demonstrated so far in the book. Finally, Gideon is starting to show some confidence. Apparently, we see it sort of building. The men are referring to him as their leader, calling out in the midst of battle for Gideon and for the Lord. Not only is Gideon starting to seem more confident, he's commanding men. He's looking like a leader, looking like a judge, looking like some sort of mighty warrior as he had been called so long ago. It's small here, but you can't help but notice that Gideon's demeanor is pretty rapidly changing from what it's been in the previous chapters. We can't hardly imagine, given the light of this, these men, Gideon, shouting out in victory for God and for Gideon, the same Gideon just a couple chapters ago hiding in a wine press complaining to God that he wasn't big enough, he was too small, too uninfluential to be able to do anything. This, now, is a totally different Gideon leading these men into battle. No matter Gideon's leadership, there's one resounding point that ends up getting made at the end of this story, this chapter. This victory is God's. It's sort of hard to see it from any other angle. God picks the men, reducing them down to 300. God is the one that strikes fear into the camp. Even before Gideon begins to take action, this dream is already beginning to break out in rumors of the coming defeat. God would be the one to get the glory. God was the one who was ultimately leading in this victory. But let's keep reading, because as I said, we're a little bit surprised to find that this isn't the end of the story. It breaks the mold of the judges that have come before it. Without the ending of the piece that we had expected, come wondering sort of what happens next. Where does it end? This next section, to be honest, gets a little bit confusing. The pace totally changes. You're going to see right away that it's almost like an altogether different Gideon, a different story. But I think there's a reason we'll see soon enough. So, Judges chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. So the next page, Judges chapter 8. So following this battle, then the men of Ephraim said to him, this is to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim far better than the grape harvests of Abiezer? That's the family of Gideon. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided and, he, and when he said this. Verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmunna the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zubah and Zilmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zubah and Zilmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Pinal and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penal answered him as the men of Succoth had answered, and he said to the men of Penal, "When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower now Zubal and Zumuna were in Kirkar, with their army, about fifteen thousand men, all who had left all who was left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen a hundred and twenty thousand men who drew the sword and Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nubah and the Geba and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zubal and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zubal and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into panic. When Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, he captured a young man of Succoth, this first town they encountered, uh, and he questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zubal and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zubal and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Zukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penal and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zubal and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they, every one of them resembling the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, raise and kill them, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zuba and Zelmuna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zuba and Zilmuna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Okay, let's say one thing. That escalated really quick, and that seems like a really complicated mess of a story to work through. I don't know if you read that this week and said to yourself, Boy, I get a lot out of that story, right? It is confusing. It escalates quickly, but I think we can try to walk through it, and what you're going to find is it's actually pretty remarkable. Remember, I said this is becoming one of my most interesting, most favorite stories in the Old Testament. The first paragraph, verses one through three, is strange. It's a little bit confusing. Apparently, one of the Israelite tribes, Ephraim, confronted Gideon after the battle because they weren't asked to be a part of the battle. They were offended, they didn't get a share in the honor, no one had asked them to be involved in this great victory. It's not new for us to find that these Israelite tribes are starting to find conflict between one another. If you remember back to Deborah in her song, chapter 5, she actually criticized some of the tribes for not being willing to participate. There's a sense throughout the book of Judges that this conflict between tribes is starting to grow. Every story, we see it showing up in sort of a new way. If you pay attention to the book, you're going to see that tension grow to, by the end of Judges, a full-scale civil war breaking out between the tribes of Israel. But for now, I guess it's probably enough at this point to say we shouldn't be surprised when people who are all supposed to be following God sometimes end up fighting with one another over petty turf wards, pride, who should be involved, who gets the credit, who gets the honor. What Gideon does is he dismisses the whole thing with what we might call a bit of flattery. You know the distinction between flattery and gossip, right? That's the one that gets drawn a lot. Gossip is the idea of saying something in secret that you would never dare say to someone's face. And flattery is the idea of saying something to someone's face that you would never dare say in secret about them, right? So that's a little bit of what seems to be going on. Gideon basically says to these upset Ephraimites, Everyone knows that you're far more advanced, that your great fields, that your civilization is far greater than my family. He appeases their ego. He basically says to them, Don't worry, everyone still knows you're the best. I haven't taken any glory from you. Hearing Gideon admit that they're far better than he or his family apparently is enough to disarm their anger, and they leave the whole thing sort of left without any fight, any more tension. It's hard to know totally what to make of that, right? Something seems good about it. He sort of wisely disarms their anger. Something seems a little strange about it because he seems to be going a little too far. I mean, after all, Deborah was more than willing to publicly shame all of the tribes who didn't participate. But here's Gideon maybe showing humility. We're not quite sure what to call it. But in the very next section, the stories that follow, we find Gideon again in conflict with two more groups of Israelites, these two cities, But in these cases, Gideon doesn't seem to show an ounce of humility in how he handles the conflict with them. With more context picking up in the story, Gideon's words to these Ephraimites start looking more like manipulation and appeasement than humility or any type of prophetic wise leadership. Ephraim, it's true, we know, was one of the most powerful tribes in Israel. Gideon at the moment doesn't seem too interested in trying to be involved with them, lead them, or critique them. What he does is simply by manipulation, dismiss them, send them away, and move on with his mission, the thing that he has in mind. What comes next is probably the hardest part of the story to read. Apparently, two Midianite kings escaped from the battle. They had escaped and began to flee, and Gideon and these 300 men were pursuing them. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but that's sort of sounding like a theme of judges as well, right? A judge chasing after an escaped king to close out and finish the victory. Gideon and his men stop at a town we read named Saccoth, and they do sort of a natural thing. They come in and ask for food. Exhausted from the battle and now pursuing these two kings, they ask this Israelite town if they would feed them. But the town, remember, even though it's an Israelite town, realizes that these two Midianite kings are not yet caught. Apparently, they're building another army, trying to stage a comeback. They come to the conclusion that if they help Gideon here, and he doesn't defeat these kings, then surely those Midianite kings, when they come back through, will punish them for supporting Gideon, their enemy. So they basically say this. We'd rather not get involved right now until we see who actually comes out winning this thing. They sort of refuse to make a decision. So what does Gideon do? He promises to come back upon his victory and punish them. Literally, I love the way it says it, verse 7. Gideon says, well then, <laughs> right? So it sounds of like something like we would say. Well, if you refuse to take sides, then he says, when I come back, I promise to with thorns from the wilderness, after I've captured these teams, teach you a lesson. Next, the whole thing plays out again in another town named Peniel. He goes, asks for support. Once again, they choose not to get involved. This time, Gideon promises, when I come back in peace, once this victory is secured, I'll tear down the defenses, the tower, the city. Gideon ends up doing exactly what he promised. He catches these two kings, their army, by surprise. Once again, fear breaks out. And he routs the army and seizes these two kings. And marching them back to his home turf, he comes across these two cities, these two kings now captured. What does he do? At Sukkoth, he captures a boy outside of the town and forces him to give up the name of all of the elders, the rulers of the city of Sukkoth. Gideon drags them out and publicly beats them, whips them with thorns. Humiliation. At Penal, he does worse. He tears down the defenses and then goes one step further, we read, and puts to death all of the men of the entire city. The specific words that end up getting used in the passage are actually pretty fascinating. Remember, we said it before, when we met Gideon, where was he? He was beating out, threshing wheat in a wine press. And what was the next thing that he does? He goes about tearing down, right? All of the strongholds, these idols of his father. They end up using the exact same words in these two situations. Gideon at first was beating, threshing wheat. Here at Sukkoth, he ends up beating, literally threshing the elders of the town. Before he tore down the altars, the Asherah pole of his father, and at Peniel, the second town, he literally tears down the defenses of the city, the tower. Passage, uh, in the passage, verse 16 says it in an interesting way. Verse 16 says that Gideon's goal was to teach them a lesson. It's one word, this phrase, teach them a lesson in the Hebrew, and it's not the word we normally think of. The word to instruct or to give someone a lesson is the familiar word Torah, the one we use to describe the beginning of the Bible, to instruct, to guide, to teach a lesson. This one carries a slightly different connotation. It has the connotation, this Hebrew word, yada to teach them a lesson that's probably more accurately translated something like this. Gideon made himself known. He taught him a lesson about who he was, came with words, they disobeyed, and on his way back, Gideon made himself, his point, clear. He punished them. Next, Gideon turns his attention to these two Midianite kings two that he's been dragging along with him since their defeat. We're surprised to discover that these two kings, possibly in their fight as they had fled, had apparently come across Gideon's home. The author has sort of hid this fact to us up till now. But in doing so, they had captured and killed Gideon's own brothers. When Gideon confronts them about it, they don't deny it at all. They even acknowledge that his two brothers looked were just like him in stature, like sons of a king, apparently giving some honor, but ultimately acknowledging the fact that they had done just that, they had put them to death. Gideon, we find out, so much of what must be driving all of this reckless action, is determined to avenge the death of these brothers, but we're shocked to read how he goes about doing it. With these two kings standing before him, Gideon passes his sword to his son, and he commands his son to kill the two kings. We read that the son freezes in fear and is unable to do so because he was still young. (laughs) What in the world is going on with this story and with Gideon? This is not what we had expected. At the end of this battle, with Gideon finally having courage and acting like a judge, all of this seems to be spiraling completely out of control. Judges has this theme, right, about the Canaanite kings getting humiliated, getting shamed, if you remember, Eglon was killed by the handicap assassin that they thought might have even been on the toilet. Cicero was struck down by a woman in a tent after she made him look like a small child. you remember the stories? So we aren't totally caught off guard by the idea of these two Midianite kings being shamed and humiliated. But something is unique here. Both times before, God was the one who worked the shaming of the kings when no one else had seen it coming. But here, Gideon seems to take up the theme, this agenda, completely on his own puts together his own plan to shame these kings. He hands the sword to a small boy, his own son, and supposedly decides that he'll shame them by having them killed, executed by a child. But the whole plan backfires. Gideon's son, by no small irony, is frozen in fear for being too young. Can't help but sort of pick up the connotations of Gideon's own story at the beginning. And Gideon ends up being the one shamed, as he's mocked by these two kings and forced to take up the sword himself and kill the two kings to end the section of the story. Let's pause here for a second. What in the world is going on with Gideon and the ending of this story that goes absolutely nothing like what we've learned to expect from all of the other judges that have come before? This chapter 8 spins everything into absolute chaos. It's full of killing and punishing, anger, vengeance... We turn the page to chapter 8, and all of a sudden, everything goes completely crazy. I mean, you see it. You don't have to, like, understand even what's happening in the story to recognize the pace is totally different than all of the chapters before it. All of a sudden, we get all of these stories piling up so fast, we can't hardly keep track of what's going on and who's doing what. The stories end up sort of interwoven with each other. If you read through them, they're not in clear, succinct order. The whole chapter is chaos, absolute chaos. No one seems to be thinking all it is is action, 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 without a moment to reflect. The first time we read it, we can't handle making sense of what's going on because we're so caught off guard by how fast everything begins to break down. But there is one shocking, if you pay attention, glaring omission, a difference from this chapter and all the chapters before. In this section, God is mentioned three times in everything that we read. The first time, Gideon disarms the angry Ephraimites by pointing out that God had used them too. The second time, Gideon evokes God's name to remind the rebellious towns what God will do for him. The third time, in another place, Gideon swears, As the Lord is alive, if you would have spared my brothers, then I would have spared your life. The chapter before mentions God 11 times. Almost all 11 mentions of him are in direct action that God took or direct dialogue that he has with Gideon. Gideon's talk about God in chapter 8 ends up being about one primary thing justifying his actions in God's name. It seems to come quite naturally, quite easily to him. He mentions God, references God, swears by God, points out God on his side, but not a bit of dialogue. Not a bit of God actually taking action. What is missing is any real attention paid to what God is doing. Worse, as hard as it is for us to read, apparently the rest of the Israelites following Gideon come to the conclusion that God must actually be behind all of this. Look at all the God talk. Look at the heroism. Look at what Gideon is getting done. He's almost like a king pulling in all of the rebellious tribes, punishing the people for not following Apparently everyone around Gideon thought that he was talking to God and was pretty impressed with the type of leadership he was finally enacting. Gideon's self-interest as we discovered, the thing that's been driving his story from the beginning, when he finally finds courage to follow God, his self-interest doesn't disappear. But rather all of this confidence of victory has actually made his self-interest grow far, far worse. The low self-esteem, his self-obsession that had created in the beginning, his man of hesitation and of fear, has now morphed in, the same self-interest, the same self-obsession, to a man of action, controlled by only his thoughts, only his motives, once again his self-interest. And worse of all, all of it now apparently seems to be being given legitimacy by his easy use of God's name to justify his action and his leadership. Tim Keller says this. He has a little book on the book of Judges, and I think it's helpful. He says, Gideon's need for respect and honor and his violent, bitter rage when he fails to be given what he thinks he deserves shows that his success in battle has been the worst thing possible for him. He has become addicted to and dependent on his success. There's a terrible spiritual danger, Keller writes, involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm that belief. In fact, we have earned this blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. Let me highlight one of those lines in there again. There's a terrible spiritual danger involved in receiving any blessing probably not a line most of us would sit down and write. There's a terrible spiritual danger involved in receiving any blessing. I think what is so painful about Gideon's story, so hard to come to as a conclusion, is that I've been beginning to realize that so much of myself was in Gideon's life. The hesitation, the wrestling with God, the wishing he had things spelled out more clearly, we all sort of resonate with Gideon as we've worked through the story. Some of you have even told me as much. His fear, the hesitation, the struggle to trust. We like Gideon. Gideon seems like us. Normal, a common man, wrestling with the same things that we do. But here all of a sudden, when we turn the page to chapter 8, this catches us completely off guard. None of us would expect to act this way. None of us would expect our story to act this way. But it creates a massive warning. If so much of us resonates with Gideon and his small, supposedly humble state... Then what do we do when we see Gideon begin to ha- behave and act like he does here? The warning he gives us is this. All this unchecked self-interest, this topic that we've been talking about for 3 weeks now, thinking of myself constantly, unchecked and combined with God's blessings, it's a recipe for one of the worst kinds of pride possible. One of the one that ends up leading in Gideon's case to devastating consequences. Self-interest combined with God's blessing, leads to a pride that we might call religious entitlement. Easy use of God's name, easy use of justifying him, counting all of the blessings and recognizing him as the source, but in all of them, becoming more self-interested, more self-absorbed, and thinking more highly of ourselves, not in spite of our religious belief, but because of it. You can't help but pause for a moment and sort of let that risk sink in. It's a pretty profound one, that in reality, most of us didn't see coming in Gideon's story. We live in a culture, and probably to be most honest, the church culture just as much, that does almost nothing to help us check our self-centeredness. In fact, most of this culture, and even at times our own churches, are constantly leveraging that self-interest, our felt needs, to try to sell some product or gain better attendance, even at times to use our self-interest as a tool for growing as a disciple, discipleship. We are then instructed, after all of this self-interest is leveled, to be on the lookout for God's blessings. You've obeyed. We've done what we were supposed to. We've taken the right actions. Now we should anticipate, start expecting, and start looking for things to go well, for God to start blessing. Because after all, look at how well we've done in following him and taking up his call and obeying. Sometimes it takes expressions like, you can't outgive God. So keep giving and watch for him to start returning. All this built-up expectation... We've done our part. Now watch as God starts to do his. What we've done, I think, is we've ended up convincing ourselves that we're worth blessing. That we've finally gotten our act together enough. We've shown enough courage. We've shown enough action that all of the good stuff finally starting to happen is because we've done it. We've accomplished it. It's been by God. It's come through God. But it's God recognizing how well we're doing, how much progress we're making in life. We've done what we were supposed to do gives us confidence in knowing we're making progress. We've accepted grace as a way of becoming a Christian, and we've pretty quickly moved on to the concept that the rest of life is lived by us making progress, by us having discipline, and watching as God responds to what we've accomplished. Gideon helps us realize that we have to tread very gently here. What we're doing is unleashing a toxic combination that, for Gideon, ends up tearing his life and Israel apart. Is it any surprise that Christians today don't tend to be marked by their peaceful humility, their agreeableness? But many Christians struggle with all of the same marks of Gideon. Greed and anger, entitlement, selfishness, competitiveness. I'm afraid that we end up reaping exactly what we've been sowing. A willingness to recognize and list out all of God's blessings, and at the same time a toxic mix of self-centeredness that leads us to believe that somehow we've earned it or deserve it at this point you might be saying okay i see the risk but just to be fair i haven't torn down any cities i haven't beaten up any political officials i haven't murdered any kings right so gideon's risk seems real but it doesn't seem to be playing itself out in that degree in my life the rest of gideon's story the last bit helps us realize how subtly this ends up playing itself out this religious self-centeredness this shift from grace to reward how subtle it is in our own lives, in our own worship. I want to finish the story, chapter 8, verse 22. We'll read through the end. It's not much. It's a little simpler than the part that came before it. So starting in verse 22 through the end, this is the end of Gideon's life. So upon returning, having conquered the Midianites and these kings, verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of the Midians. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It sounds good, doesn't it? And Gideon said to them, But let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had gold earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Aphra. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. Jorubala, the son of Joshua or Joash, remember this is Gideon's other name, went and lived in his home, own home. Now Gideon had seven, seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And God, the son of Joash, and Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah, of the Abirrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barath their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jabral, Gideon, in return for all the good that had done for Israel. the Israelites apparently end up being so impressed with all of Gideon's action, finally this military leader conquering people, putting things back in order, showing initiative, that upon his return, they decide to crown him king. This is the kind of man we want to commit ourselves to, to rule us, to lead us, a man of action. It's his ability to get things done. Maybe it's partly his giftedness, his supposed blessedness by God. Look at how much God is blessing him. Maybe even it's how capably he speaks for God. Almost every line somehow using God to point out the justification of his action. Whatever the reason, they're impressed and they're ready to crown him king. And once again, Gideon does, just like he did at the beginning of the chapter, he appears to be pretty humble. He says to them the theologically correct answer, the Lord will rule over you, not me and my sons. He's paused for a minute and think, hey, Gideon's getting it right. Gideon seems to have his head on straight after all. But Gideon does something else, verse 24, but... Gideon had a request. He won't be king, but each of them could repay him out of gratitude by offering gold. They lay out a cloak and begin to dump it willingly in front of him. The gold won't be given to God in thanks, but it's given to Gideon in thanks. For as the Israelites said, Gideon, by his hand, has saved us. Gideon, it seems, won't be made king. He's too humble, too religious to fall into that trap. But he's more than willing to be richly rewarded and live like one. Boy, that's pretty honest of a conclusion for the Bible. It doesn't sound too ancient. Something happens when we have a low view of ourselves and then all of a sudden find success. I don't know if you've seen that happen. We think low, we have low self-esteem, all of a sudden find ourselves in the middle of success. Gideon had always described himself as poor, <coughs> insignificant. But now, having made something of himself, influence and power, he comes to, the, in his mind, logical conclusion that he should be rewarded. He's earned it. He won't claim the crown, he won't try to become a king, but after all, gold, riches, it's a pretty fitting sign of gratitude for the people that he saved. This is one of the hallmark signs of self-infatuation. In poverty and in failure, it's because we fail, our fault, we're not enough. But in riches and success, it's because we're smart, we're capable, we've achieved. This idea of self-interested, self-obsession doesn't just play itself out in low self-esteem or pride. It runs through the story from beginning to finish, never moving beyond it. In poverty, it's because he is insufficient. In riches, it's because he is powerful and accomplished. The success will end up for Gideon being more blinding and more destructive than even his own low self-esteem. Gideon takes the gold, and we read that he creates with it an ephod, Sort of a strange word. If you remember, the ephod is the thing the high priest wore in the tabernacle. We don't exactly know what he's doing here, but Gideon seems to create some sort of golden priestly garment for himself. Something far nicer than the one that the high priest would have actually worn. And worse yet, he takes it and he sets it up in his hometown of Ophrah. Gideon, it seems, imagines himself as some decorated, shining example of what a priest is standing between God and man. Some sort of special status between him and Israel, speaking for God, leading Israel. We're told that Gideon's life ends rich, many wives, 70 sons, even at a Canaanite concubine who bears a son named Abimelech, who literally in Hebrew means, my father is king, although he's refused to be king. It seems like Gideon won't take the title of king, but he's apparently more than willing to live as one, rich with wives rich with gratitude, leading. He won't be a king, but he'll be honored as one, rich as one, with all the privileges of one. Here's Gideon, our hero, our judge, the mighty warrior. And the story ends with the people of Israel, upon his death, worshiping all the same Canaanite gods they had before. When he dies, we read, not much of anything is left accomplished. The author of Judges doesn't hide much from us at the end of the story. All of the success, this golden image of Gideon as king and priest, we're told that it becomes a snare, a trap. It looks good, and in the end it ends up catching him, blinding Gideon to God. In Afra, this hometown, if you remember, this is the place where Gideon specifically began his story. How did he do it? He did it by tearing down the false idols. But here at the begin, at the end of the story, Gideon now erects an idol of himself in the very same place, one fashioned for him, for his honor. And once again, people begin to worship it. Here's what's so hard to reconcile about Gideon's story. To the Israelites all around him, to everyone who's looking in, Gideon appears to be doing everything right. And if you just read Gideon's words, just what he says, the words all sound right. They're full of God talk, full of supposed humility and wisdom. Everything checks out to be a man of God, someone that you could follow. He's the model that everyone in Israel is trying to live up to, and he's rewarded for it. He really is. He walks away from being king. He walks away like George Washington, if you remember, leaving the power of the presidency. He really is a model in so many ways of what the Israelites want to become. He does, in fact, turn out to be the mighty warrior that we had been promised from the beginning. But don't miss the major irony of the story. He ends up reveling not in God's accomplishments, God's victories, not in worship as he had at the beginning. He ends up reveling in his own humility, basking in his own blessings, and in the end, missing God once again altogether. There's no happy ending to the story, only the sad ending of a man's life, blinded by his own religion, blinded by his own success. Back in the same town in which he had started, back to worshiping an idol, this time one of himself. And once again, just like he started, Gideon can't see God. At the beginning of the story, he overlooked God because he assumed that God had forgotten about him. He didn't care about the Israelites. At the end of the story, he ends up overlooking God because he assumes that God is infatuated with him, blessing him. In both cases, he ends up missing God, and God ends up being removed from the story. So what are we to do with it? There's probably a lot just in reading the story that begins to sink in and sort of have impact. I don't think I have to draw out too much application. But I want to do a couple points real quick, and then we'll end with the C.S. Lewis quote. But the first thing is this. What do we do with a life like Gideon's, a story like Gideon's? The first thing it does is this. It teaches us to recognize that religion, faith, is not an antidote to pride. Simply because you follow God, simply because you show up to a service, simply because you tithe and give— doesn't necessarily mean that you're battling pride. In fact, religion, faith, obedience can actually make pride worse. The second thing it teaches us is not to assume that because we're successful, well-respected or religiously disciplined or even morally right, that you have any ground whatsoever to stand on before God. Gideon gets a lot right. Let's be fair to him. At times he shows remarkable faith that the New Testament will give him credit for. But it never allows him to be able to stand before God in his strength. All of the courage we recognize is given by God's willingness to work with him, to lead him, to bring him along to this place of faith. The third thing it does is this. It teaches us to keep hold of grace, fight for it, constantly remind yourself of how desperate you are for God, no matter how much progress, no matter how much good. Never allow yourself to come to the conclusion that you have made progress, but rather God, by his grace, is bringing you along. And finally, this is probably the hardest. (laughs) It's hard because by nature of giving this point, it kind of undoes the point. Find ways to stop thinking so much about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's not an easy thing to say I'm going to start doing because you probably stopped doing it the moment you started. I propose worship. A commitment to neighbor is a pretty good place to get started with it. Worshiping God helps us lose ourselves and find ourselves. In relationship to him and neighbor reminds us that this world does not revolve around or was not created for us, but we're a part of something bigger God is doing. C.S. Lewis, in his famous chapter on pride, I've quoted before from Mere Christianity, puts it this way. It says this. All of this raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say that they believe in God and appear to themselves to be very religious? I'm afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks they are far better than the ordinary people around them. They pay a penny's worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow man. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said, that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap, this snare, as it's called the Gideon. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel, feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure at that moment that we are not being acted upon by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself so small as a dirty object. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. It is a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices, pride, can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. Those of us who claim to have a relationship with God are at the greatest risk of pride. If you aren't thinking about it, if you're not constantly testing your heart to determine if it's there, you're probably missing it and overlooking it. It's going unacknowledged. We have this common saying to count our blessings, but I want to propose to you that counting your blessings is not far enough. We suspect that it will cultivate gratitude and humility, but in fact, counting your blessings alone can be one of the most dangerous and God-destroying disciplines in life. By counting them, you're unconsciously reveling in what you've accomplished and what you've received. I'm far less concerned that we would count our blessings than I am to ensure that when you do, you recognize that they are God's, by grace, undeserved. As you think of what God has done and you begin to count them, it brings us to our knees, drives us there in the recognition, the weight of the realization that nothing that we have is deserved or earned or merited But by grace, as God wrestled with Gideon, willing time and time again to meet his tests, to dialogue with him, how gracious God is in giving us his son and giving us life, not because we've earned it or deserved it, the greatest of all blessings offered simply by grace. If counting your blessings doesn't bring you back to the point of how much you don't deserve them and how gracious God is, you may be mixing one of the most toxic possible combinations of getting from God and self-interest leading to this religious pride. I just want to end there. Uh, I feel a deep sense personally to repent. Uh, I don't think there's probably any further I need to go on hammering the point, because to be honest with you, I'm just as terrible at this stuff as all of us are. We all miss it. We all get so self-interested we overlook it. At times, it becomes hard to even recognize it in ourselves. All this weekend, as I reflected on this sermon, I just kept thinking about how much attention I give to myself, trying to figure out what I've accomplished, what I need to do, frustrations with how I'd expected things to go. Gideon helps me realize it's far better to stop to worship, to accept, to trust, to just simply pray and say, God, don't let us become blind to you, even in the midst of our own religion our own faith, our own obedience. Can we do that? Can we close in prayer?